Our reading this morning is from Romans chapter 7, read from the New Living Translation in English and then in Spanish. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that, in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I, want, I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by, by sin and death? Thank God the answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. Y ahora, Romanos 7 en español. Sabemos, en efecto, que la ley es espiritual, pero yo soy meramente humano y estoy vendido como esclavo al pecado. No entiendo lo que me pasa, pues no hago lo que quiero, sino lo que aborrezco. Ahora bien, si hago lo que no quiero, estoy de acuerdo en que la ley es buena. Pero en ese caso, ya no soy yo quien lo lleva a cabo, sino el pecado que habita en mí. Yo sé que en mí, es decir, en mi naturaleza pecaminosa, nada bueno habita. Aunque deseo hacer lo bueno, no soy capaz de hacerlo. De hecho, no hago el bien que quiero, sino el mal que no quiero. Y si hago lo que no quiero, ya no soy yo quien lo hace, sino el pecado que habita en mí. Así que descubro esta ley, que cuando quiero hacer el bien, me acompaña el mal porque en lo íntimo de mi ser me deleito en la ley de Dios. Pero me doy cuenta de que en los miembros de mi cuerpo hay otra ley, que es la ley del pecado. Esta ley lucha contra la ley de mi mente y me tiene cautivo. Soy un pobre miserable. ¿Quién me librará de este cuerpo mortal? Gracias a Dios, por medio de Jesucristo nuestro Señor. En conclusión, con la mente, yo mismo me someto a la ley de Dios, pero mi naturaleza pecaminosa está sujeta a la ley del pecado. The word of the Lord. How are you doing in your faith life? If I asked that question of each one of you individually, my guess is some of you would actually answer that you're doing fine, fine spiritually. You've been growing in your faith. You've experienced God recently or are, or you're content with the level of your faith right now. But my guess is many of you are dealing with or in the process of dealing with discouragement, struggling with sin, and even with doubt. If that's not you right now, you know what that is because it's happened in your past. And if not, you will in the future. And if you're somebody who's come to faith recently, in the past month or the past year, this is not so much a warning but a reality check is that sometimes there's this grace that starts at the beginning and then all of a sudden you deal with the realities of struggling in life the ongoing life of faith that is not always that easy. My aims this morning are to build off of what we've done already. The past few weeks we've been looking at the gospel 
in Romans. We've been looking at Romans, how we have a human problem of sin, but God in Jesus Christ has provided the solution in his death on the cross. Last week, we tried to understand the implications of the gospel, and this morning, we're going to apply them in one particular area, that area of struggling with doubt and sin, and how God's word can encourage, assure, and give us hope. So my experience is this, and I just mentioned it, every Christian at some point struggles in their life of faith. And if not now, you will. Mother Teresa, who was a saint of the church, was said to have written in a letter of her own about her deep, dark, troubling heart. For decades, she went on serving the poor in India with a brokenness and a hopelessness, a despairing in her faith. She writes at one point in one of her letters, where is my faith? Even deep down in, there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. I have no faith. I dare not utter the words and thoughts that crowd in my heart. I am told that God loves me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. Despairing darkness. John Bunyan was a Puritan pastor famous for uh, his, his novel, but in his uh, book, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, he writes about his own life, he writes, I feared that this sin of mine might be unpardonable. Whatever his sin was, it might be unpardonable. I found it a hard work now to pray to God because despair was swallowing me up. The great theologian John Bunyan the servant of the, of the poor, Mother Teresa, both struggled with doubt and despair. A number of years ago, I was meeting regularly with a Christian friend of mine who was struggling with addiction and his faith. He was a recovering alcoholic. Now, my friend believed the gospel basics, and the ones that we've been talking about this past month. He knew he was a sinner. He believed that Jesus died for him and made him right by grace through faith. But because he continued to struggle with addiction and selfishness and his sinful desires, he had severe doubts. And he wondered aloud to me numerous times, am I even a Christian? Why should God love me? I can relate to my friend because years earlier, when I was in my early teenage years, I was a young guy who followed Christ but I had this deep insecurity, this worry that God was going to return. You know, the promise of Christianity is that Christ will return. My worry was that Christ would return at the moment that I was sinning. Think about it. And because I kept wrestling with my sinfulness in that early teenage years, I was sure that if Christ came on those days, I would miss out on salvation. Now, look, I. I tried to have assurance, but my assurance was based on how I was doing at the moment. And so there would be days as a young teenager that I felt pretty confident because I had avoided the known commandments at least for 48 hours. And I felt confident if Christ returned, he would let me in at that moment. But when I was falling into sin, my thoughts were breaking away. When I had done something that I had confessed again and again and promised I would never do again and then did it again. I was certain that if Jesus came, he would shut the door in my face. 
Both my friend and my early teenage self were viewing God and our life in faith from a religious and moralistic perspective instead of from the gospel. It's why we go back to that basic dichotomy again and again. What is the difference between religion and the gospel? You know, there is religiousness that pervades churches. If you go to a traditional church, there might be a moralistic side to the way that they teach or understand Christianity. The moralistic side says, be good. You've got to follow the rules. You must obey. The driving motivation is guilt and fear. The reverse of that is more modern churches that approach Christianity from a therapeutic perspective. Instead of holding the high bar of you've got to do these commandments, they lower the bar and say, you don't need to be good, be happy. Follow your heart. Do what you want. They're concerned about esteem and the motivation is to feel good about yourself. Whether you are traditional or modern church or pretty much anyone approaching God and life, all religious approaches are a way of seeking to feel okay, to be right with God on our own. It's I must do something. The gospel, of course, and you know this, you've heard it in here, is the opposite. It's not what you do or what you need to do or what you should do. It's what Christ did on the cross that matters. Your status before God, your identity, and your future are all rooted and driven in the gospel, in what he has already done. Theologian Richard Lovelace put it this way, it is the gospel's claim that we are children of God, although, he says, there is plenty of evidence in us against it. The faith that surmounts this evidence and that is able to warm itself at the fire of God's love instead of having to steal love and acceptance from other sources is actually the root of holiness. Now hear what he's saying. He's saying the gospel makes claims like this. You're a child of God, but the problem is you look at yourself and you don't look like a child of God. You know your heart and your feelings. You don't always feel like you're a loved child of God. The faith that's going to surmount your argument against yourself is the one that warms itself in the truth of God's love and doesn't try to seek the assurance in other sources. Either you will trust the cross of Christ and that it is enough, or you will try to quiet your guilt and your doubt and your insecurities and your despair on your own. In Romans chapter seven, Paul has a long argument about the law. We're not gonna get, in that to get into that today. We're gonna to instead look at what he does when he talks about the struggle that all of us have at times with doubt and sin and despair and what you might even call, or he calls a little bit of, the war within us. Paul, as you might know if you read through Romans, and especially here in Romans seven, says, look, I desire God, but I wrestle against sin and I keep falling short. But ultimately, you see in the passage that we read, he applies the gospel. 
He doesn't just say this is true out there, he applies it to his situation. And he builds a hope and an assurance in what God has done for him in Christ. These verses, verses 15 and 19 that I'm gonna read here, sound confusing, but they really do describe the heart of many of us or the experience that we've had. It's the war within. In verse 15 and 19 we read, I don't really understand myself. For what I want to do, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't, do, I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Well, I can't even read that right. <laughs> I think you understand what he's talking about because you've experienced it. It's the dichotomy within each of us that desires God and wants to do what is right, but falls short again and again and again whether it was my teenage self or John Bunyan or my friend in recovery, you know what that's like. My desire is for God, Paul says, for his good, but my sinful self will not go away. If your faith is in Christ, when you do sin, it will actually drive you back to God back to the cross, seeking God's grace and forgiveness. If you're depending on your own goodness, your sin will drive you away from God, trying to hide, covering your own shame. But if your faith is in Christ, you know already that you don't want to do the things that you do wrong, and you aren't trying to hide them. What Paul is saying in Romans 7 here is that in this life, you will always be a sinner. But if your faith is in Christ, you are secure. Because of Christ, not because of you, you are right with God and your future is eternal life with the Father. Paul makes the argument throughout Romans 7, we're not gonna go into depths on it, that sin is no longer your Lord. It's no longer the one who controls you in the end. And death is no longer your eternal sentence. Nonetheless, your life is still fallen in this world. And sin does dwell in you. So the Christian life is going to be marked by an already but not yet tension. I already have security of who I am in Christ, but I don't always look like it. I am a child of God even when I don't feel like it. Gospel faith is that wrestling tension. Gospel faith is that wrestling struggle. It's that indication that you desire what is God even when you don't live it out. And in that is the root of earnest faith. So in other places in the New Testament, we read about bearing fruit in keeping with repentance or keep close to the tree of Christ and bear fruit in keeping with faith. James says, that works with, faith without works is dead. So the question is, what does it look like to produce fruit? What does it look like to do the works that reveal faith? I actually think the idea that's at the basis, the starting point, the first fruit of faith is desire. It's a will that wants to do what is right, even when you don't do it. Here's what I mean. I don't think that becoming a Christian necessarily makes you a better person. 
At least in my experience of Christians, it doesn't. Here's why. If you follow a traditional religious perspective and have a moralistic rules-oriented approach, it's very possible that because of the rules and because of guilt and because of fear, you will actually look much nicer and more upright than the rest of us. You'll be trying really hard to stay within the borders of what's right and good. And even if you throw off traditional religion and live on a more secular basis, you will probably do so on a performance-based purpose. And because you're constantly trying to prove yourself, because everyone tries to prove themselves, you might actually, even as an atheist, an agnostic, be more generous, volunteer more, more self-controlled, have better kids. Fear and a desire to look good can drive a lot of performance. So how different is it to be a gospel-driven person than one who is following religious moralistic perspectives? I would argue this from Romans 7. It's not sinlessness that defines the true believer, but rather new desires. Do you, like Paul, delight in God? Do you want more of him? Do you hate your sin? And are you frustrated when you fall short? Authentic faith is always marked by that desire disconnect. The thing that I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Just that innate desire, that longing, is a gift of the Spirit. To long for the things of God and to hate to break his heart. In Revelation 20, uh, uh, sorry, not in Revelation, in verse 22 and 23 of, of chapter seven, Paul talks about his desire. I love God, but there's another power at work within me. I am a slave to sin that is still within me. This is that disconnect. I love God's ways. I want to serve God, but within me is this disconnect this failure and frustration again and again. But as Paul hints at here, the gospel believer is not necessarily the perfect person. It's the person who is able to say, my real self, my true identity, my actual destiny is not the one that is falling apart and sinning. My true identity, my real self is the one that desires God. The sinful self is not the real me anymore. Yes, I continue to sin. I'm still a sinner, but I have been crucified with Christ. All that I have done has been nailed to the cross, and my true identity is now hidden in Christ. So what does this look like? What does it look like to be a gospel-driven struggler? When you struggle with doubt or your sinfulness, what does it look like? Well, it looks like that first thing that I was talking about, hunger. When you hunger for God, when you desire God, hunger is the first thing. In verse 21 and 22, Paul writes, I want to do what is right. And verse 22, I love God with all my heart. And later on, he says, I hate the sin that I keep sinning. Your desire is actually what the Bible talks about when it's talking about your heart. So we often talk about this idea of like, you need to have Christ in your heart, right? 
And I remember a number of years back trying to get my he head around that. that. That's not that you need to put Jesus in that beating muscle that keeps you alive. Your heart is the center of you. It's a biblical way of talking about your soul, your desires, your longing, your will. It's the part of you that makes decisions, that has a direction in life. Here's what I want. Here's what I want most. It's where your identity is bound up. It's your will, your wants, your desire, your heart. Gospel-driven struggle will involve a hunger for God most so that what you want is God. Even if it doesn't always look like that, and sometimes you just want a big piece of cake, but you know deep down in, you really want God more than the cake. I had a professor when I was in seminary who was teaching a class on Luther. And he was getting into this argument with a student because he said, look, Luther said, you can, if your faith is in Christ, you're saved by grace, you can do whatever you want. And the student said, what do you mean we can do whatever we want? Do you understand that if you say you can do whatever you want, we might go and do what we want? And the professor said, I think Luther would say, yes, do what you want. But how do I know that you're a real Christian? Because what you want most is God. What you desire at your deepest core is God's ways. So go ahead and do what you want when what you want and desire most is God. Now this is a, a challenge because our culture says do what you want. Do what you want. Do whatever you want so long as it doesn't harm anybody else. But the difference between an I world, I want something, and gospel wants, is that in the I want world, I'm trying to make myself happy. I might even try to be good if I follow what I want, but the reason I'm even trying to be good is to make me happy because there's fewer consequences when I'm good or my parents approve of me when I'm good or I don't get in trouble with the police when I'm good. It's a selfish motivated doing what I want. But when you're driven by the gospel, your very core wants are a desire for God and his good and his glory. The war within, that desire for God but the inability to keep it is the internal evidence of a spirit-renewed heart. And only a spirit-renewed heart can hunger for God more than all the other opportunities in this world. At its root, do I want God most? A second descriptor of a gospel-driven struggle with doubt and sin and all the other problems in life is not just hunger, it's humility. It's an awareness of the depth of your sin. If you read Romans 7, 14 to 25, one thing you get is Paul is very clear that he says, verse 18, nothing good dwells within me. It's a deep repentance, realizing and admitting the depth of your sinfulness. It's not just confessing your sins, it's confessing the sin beneath your sin. What do I mean? Religious people will confess their breaking of commandments. I murdered. 
But a Christian, a gospel-driven Christian, doesn't just confess breaking the externals. They confess where they fall short of the positives. It's not just, I, I didn't murder, it's I failed to love. Or in my heart, I was critical and mean and hateful. Or even the motives behind why we do good. I was trying not to say horrible things about her because I didn't want to get in trouble with God. And I thought, really, it's just about trying to appease God. A Christian confesses not just the reasons you avoid sin, your negatives, your positives, your externals, your internals, every part of us, we lay before God and say, I'm a sinner through and through. And as a result of that repentant heart, there's no sense in which a gospel-driven believer is ever superior or self-righteous or defensive. They're never comparing or trying to justify themselves. In fact, Paul gets at the root of it in verse 24. The, the type of humility is that cry that he has in verse 24, oh, what a miserable person I am. What a miserable, wretched person that I am. Now, one of the problems with this phrase, what a miserable person I am, is it actually sounds like somebody who is self-loathing and self-hating and has really low self-esteem. But there's a difference between gospel humility and being somebody who is simply self-loathing. What's the difference? It's how those people interact with others. A self-loathing person who simply is miserable is a person who's hard to be around. They're touchy and critical and always blaming other people. They hate themselves, but deep down in their insecurities cause them to lash out at others. There's a self-absorption even in somebody who is low of self-esteem. As my friend, the recovering alcoholic said, as they said often in AA meetings, I'm not much, but I'm all I think about. That typifies the self-loather. I'm not much, but I'm all I think about. A gospel-driven humility is very different. As many preachers have put it, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. A humble person is the sort of person that enters a room and doesn't say, here I am, but there you are. A gospel humble person makes you feel important. They extend love and care about others. The believer, like Paul, who says, miserable person that I am, actually sees herself that way, as a wretch, as a sinner, as no better than anybody else, as a broken and needy, spiritually poor person. She sees herself as a miserable person, but nobody else does. They see her as a delight. They want to be around her. The self-loathing person, on the other hand, everyone knows she's a misery to be around, and nobody wants to be near her. There's a massive difference between self-loathing and gospel humility. It is the acknowledgement that I cannot stand on my own, I depend on Christ and Christ alone, and therefore I'm no better than anyone else, and I can extend love and generosity 
and joy, even to people that I don't like. First, hungering for God. Second, humility. Third, the gospel-driven struggle involves hope. It's not totally despairing. Paul says, wretched man that I am, miserable person that I am, who will rescue me from this body of sin and death? And he comes back with the answer, thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And then in the very next verse, and we separate it out with chapters, the very next verse is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who belong to Christ Jesus. So he's going along in this argument saying, here's my problem. I want to do what is right, but I keep falling into sin. I hate sin, but I keep doing it. What is wrong with me? Here's my problem. I desire God, but I'm still enslaved to my sinful self. Who is going to rescue me from my sinful self? Oh yeah, that's right, Christ already has. Thank God, Christ has already set me free. Yes, I might feel like a sinner, and I will struggle again and again and again and again. But there is no condemnation. I have already been set free. It is the idea of being at war and at peace at the same time. My sinfulness may be my experience now, and I need to be at war with my sinfulness because I desire God. But I am at peace because my sin and my doubt and my struggle is not who I really am. My identity and my destiny are bound up in Christ, what he has done and what he says about me. All people, all human beings, whether you're a Christian or not, any religion, no religion, all human beings struggle with the war within. It's the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde side of us. Every person, whether they turn to God's law or they turn to traditional religion or they turn to what their culture says or what their parents say or even what they say, every culture, every world, every worldview, every person has standards. And we all fall short of those standards. And we all wrestle with that war between ourselves, within ourselves. Every human has a set of morals, and every human falls short. Everyone has a desire to be good in whatever way they carve that out, and they wrestle with their selfishness that pushes against that good. It's what Freud talked about when he talked about the superego fighting the libido. Our conscience, that side of us that thinks there's a right way that will appeal to our culture, that will appeal to our family, and then that side of us that is driven by animalistic desires for self. It's always at war. But the difference, the difference between the unbeliever and the believer with that war is the unbeliever is at war with herself, but it is a war she cannot win. The believer is also at war with herself, but it is a war she cannot lose. What I told my friend numerous times was, do you believe that you're a sinner? And he said, yes, of course I do. Do you believe that Christ's death was enough for you? Y yes, I do. Do you desire God more than your sin? I, I do. Then there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Warm yourself, my friend, by the fire of God's love for you. Rest, even as you're at war, rest in his finished work on the cross for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this morning, most of us are aware of our sin, and we are so grateful that there's not a recording of everything we thought or have done or will do. But you know. But our hope, O oh Lord, is built on nothing but Jesus' blood and righteousness. When we despair or struggle, Christ is our hope and our stay. On Christ, the solid rock is all we can stand on. Everything else we put our trust in is sinking sand. Help us to do that this morning and each day. In the name of Jesus Christ, who died for us, we pray. Amen.